Geogreve, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. The Islamic Republic of Iran is this week the target of rallies and vigils all around Ireland and across Europe. People are showing their solidarity with the thousands of Iranians who have taken to their streets to protest against the Islamic State following the death in custody of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who was arrested for so-called unsuitable attire. Dr. Roja Fazieli was a 12-year-old girl when she had to flee Iran in 1992 and she was granted humanitarian status here in Ireland with her mother and sister. She's now Associate Professor of Islamic Civilizations at Trinity College Dublin and also the Chairperson of the Immigrant Council of Ireland. Roja, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thank you very much, Yvonne. Thank you for having me. Roja, I believe that Massa was a Kurdish visitor to Tehran when she was arrested. She, she was, uh, you know, a young 22-year-old, uh, as you said, visiting family with her brother. And um, this arrest and uh, the fact that she died under custody, it, it has really sparked uh, a lot of anger across Iran. You know, Massa's death really personifies 43 years of Islamic regime's violence against marginalized bodies, women's bodies, minority bodies, dissident bodies, and bodies that have been arrested, tortured and, and killed and have been controlled, coerced and, and repressed. So what, what we are witnessing now is that collective memory of these 43 years of the Islamic regime's violence uh, sparked by Massa's death. As someone from Iran, now living in Ireland since you fled the war in 1992, how have these protests affected you and your family? It's It's been a very emotional uh, two weeks, especially um, for me, a lot of my, my own work and scholarship, it's uh, on, on women's rights, especially in Iran. Uh, and I have known the Iranian women's movement uh, very intimately. Uh, so to see these very young women and men protesting so fear, fearlessly, it, it really is, is very hopeful. But at the same time, uh, you know, we do have a lot of fear regarding their uh, safety. And, and also uh, it, it does give us uh, a lot of hope of what the future holds. One thing that many commentators have focused on is the diversity of the protesters, old and young, rich and poor, men as well as women, and perhaps especially liberal and conservative all coming together. And it's particularly striking that very conservative hijab or chador-wearing women are also protesting, everyone seemingly united in saying that whether or not one wears a hijab should be a choice. That's a, it, It's a very uh, good question, Siobhan, uh, and the diversity of the protesters is a very important factor. The fact that it's actually spread all throughout Iran, so it's transcending ethnical, religious differences in many ways. Uh, you know, most of the people that we do see on the street are quite young, and the women who are, at least we are seeing in the media, are the ones who are taking off their headscarves in, in protest in a very symbolic 
symbolic way as well. There's so many uh, different uh, types of symbolism in, in these protests. So mm-hmm. the actual taking off the headscarf, uh, dancing uh, uh, while burning the headscarf, but also the slogan, Zan Zendegi Azadi, woman, life, freedom. All of these are very symbolic. Uh, so let me start maybe with the, with the slogan and then I come back to, to uh, other things that you mentioned in your question as well. Okay. So the slogan, Zan Zendegi Azadi, actually is a Kurdish slogan, Zen Jian Azadi. And that by itself being chanted across Iran is, is very symbolic. So it, it was um, first chanted and heard and spread uh, at funeral of Mahsa Amini in Kurdistan in Sabrez. And that by itself, to see that chanted across Iran is symbolic because usually when there is a movement uh, starting from Kurdistan, it's immediately labeled as, you know, this, these are separatists, they are terrorists. Uh, so, so that by itself has, has a unifying factor. Mm. And then you see uh, men out there with women in equal numbers, really. And again, that has, has, has a very symbolic uh, nature to it because usually women's issues were women's issues, but this is everybody's issues. And part of this is because really it's not just about the hijab. Um, even though the symbolism of the hijab is what we see because it's so visible, uh, it's, it's much more than that. People are out there protesting uh, the corruption of the government, their utter dis- dissatisfaction with the regime, poverty, living conditions, economic m- mismanagement, uh, widespread discrimination on basis of gender, sexuality, e- ethnicity and religion. So uh, as as for chadar wearing women uh, protesting, to be honest, I I haven't heard much. I've heard more anecdotal stories. Uh, I am sure that uh, there are. Uh, I have like one anecdotal story where uh, family who are quite religious and believe in wearing uh, the the hijab are uh, opening their doors to the protesters to come if they're injured, to treat them, to take a rest. Uh, so, so there are many, many stories like this where people from all paths of life are coming together uh, under this kind of message of unity. And, 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 and again, uh, one message that's, that's coming out very strongly, very strongly this time, which is very different to other protests that has happened in Iran, whether it be it 2009, uh, 2017, 2019, um, is that they are, the protesters are actually asking very loudly for an end to the Islamic Republic. Another symbolic feature is the cutting of hair. Social media videos have shown women, um, as you say, removing the headscarf, dancing um, with the headscarf while preparing to burn it, burning the headscarf. But what what's the symbolism of, of cutting hair? I, I think... Each person who's cutting hair, uh, many of them have their own stories. So I have a friend who shaved uh, her hair uh, recently. And, and, and really, you need to know her personal story to understand what's behind it. Because many Iranian women have had personal 
a struggle with their families, with themselves, over uh, wearing, not wearing the headscarf, the chador. Um, and you have to understand as well, like, you know, wearing the headscarf, because it's uh, compulsory, it's worn in different ways anyway. There, There is always some sort of kind of protest in, in the way you wear the headscarf as well, or, or in the way that women have been wearing the headscarf. So, you know, showing a little bit of hair. But but hair uh, in, in general, you know, it has been politicized. If you look at it, not just in Iran, whether you um, cut the hair, reveal the hair, shave the hair, uh, and I'm not just talking the hair on the head body as well. Um, so there is a, a political significance, but I also think we need to look at the, the people who are doing it and what message they're giving, because there are personal individual messages that are coming through uh, these acts. So in, in outside of Iran, I've, uh, I've seen now in, in Ireland, uh, I've been to a protest on Sunday and Wednesday night, there was a vigil held in Trinity College, Dublin, in solidarity with Iranian protesters and remembering Mahsa Amini. And in both places, individual women have cut their hair. And in these circumstances, when you're outside of Iran, uh, it seems to be an act of solidarity. Why is women's hair such a focus for regulation in Islam? So it's not it's not just the hair. Um, so if if you look at kind of the the concept of uh, hijab, it's a way of being. I suppose it's it's a way of being modest. Um, and so it's I in my interpretation, I would say it's both for men and women. So a male gaze on on a woman. Uh, and uh, so it's it's you know there, there's so many different different interpretations of the hijab. Some women uh, would wear it because it's it's a spiritual act for them. It brings them closer to their God. And uh, and at times like the in Iran after the revolution, it became very much politicized. So a chador wearing woman uh, became the emblem. Of the Islamic Republic, uh, and a lot of it comes back, you know, to control of women's bodies, control of women generally. Like it's, it, you know, it goes back to to the concept of equality as well. I'm I'm talking about not generally the concept of hijab. Like we need we need about like two days to talk about the different interpretations of hijab and different types of hijab. But I'm talking about it now in uh, in the context of Iran after the Islamic Revolution, and again now, like when when uh, women are taking taking off their headscarves, uh, it's, it's very symbolic for Iran and Iranian context and Iranian history. Like, it's not the first time women are doing this. It's the first time women are doing this uh, in the collective. We read that there's uh, something which is colloquially called the morality police, um, yes. an actual police force which makes sure that women in, in public have, have their hijab properly arranged. Yes. And I hear that when you were visiting Iran back in 2004, you were subject to interrogation, verbal abuse, and you had serious accusations made against you. And I wonder, does an experience like that make you more likely to behave cautiously or to speak up more loudly um, or both? <laughs> Yeah, so um, maybe I, I, I need to give an explanation here. And it's really, it's actually really difficult to understand the structure uh, of the Iranian policing system. 
So my experience wasn't with the morality police necessarily. It was with intelligence ministry and interior ministry. Um, and, uh, and it was a crackdown on Iranian civil rights activists at the time. Uh, so there was a wave of arrests. This was at the end of 2004, the reform era. And so I, I was kind of caught in the midst of that, because I was an uh, Iranian-Irish woman who was very active that summer uh, within the NGO scene. And and I think they were trying to, to figure out where I fit <laughs> within uh, all the people that, that they had uh, they had arrested. And, and also, it wasn't like once, uh, like I was summoned numerous times for long interrogations. And really, I was waiting to be put in prison and I was under something like a, a house arrest. And I have not gone back to Iran since. So, so that is a big, big deterrence, especially when it's your area of research. Uh, but, but the morality police is, is a little bit different. Like they go around and they reprehend people uh, for, for not basically uh, obliging with uh, the compulsory hijab laws. And it's not just headscarves or veils, is it? Um, some time after your father's death, when you and your sister were still young girls, your own mother was arrested for having a button missing on her coat. Is that right? Yes, that that's uh, absolutely what what happened uh, a few years after my father had passed away. Uh, he was a medical doctor in the uh, early years of the Iran and Iraq War. Uh, 1983. So this would have been kind of later on. I can't remember how old I was. And we had moved to um, uh, Shahzavar, which is a city in north of Iran. And and I was sick. Um, and, you know, and, and Iran at that time, it was during the Iran and Iraq war. So the war went from 1980 to 1988. And um, everyone was, uh, it, 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 they were really, really repressive years uh, in many ways and also economic hardship uh, because there were many sanctions posed on Iran at the time. And so um, my, I was sick. We went, I, I remember, I think I had eye infection and my mom uh, was looking for medication for me. So I was at home and she went out. And the reason I mentioned the sanctions was because it was actually quite difficult to get uh, medication at the time. And, you know, there was a war and, and a lot of corruption as, as there is now. Uh, so, so anytime you were sick, you had to go kind of from uh, place to place to try to find the medication. And so she was doing this. She was going from pharmacy to pharmacy. And we were in, in you know, it was quite a small city. And coming out of one of the pharmacies, she was actually arrested uh, by the morality police or taken in. And she she says, you know, she had no idea. So and my mom is, you know, you don't, you know, she's, uh, she's like a slight lady in some ways, but very mighty. You do not want to mess with her. So she wasn't being quiet about it. She was like, you know, what is this? This is crazy. Why, why are you um, yeah, uh, basically taking me into the uh, morality police uh, station? And while she was sitting there, she says a young soldier passed by and said, Miss or Madam, uh, you're missing a button. And, and that's when she realized why she was apprehended in the first place. And, uh, and then she had to call. And, and this, this is where I say, like, you know, there is this culture of patriarchy as well. Then she had to call uh, her family or her family had to be called and her boss had to be called uh, for her to be basically freed and go home. 
You mentioned that there was a vigil on Wednesday night in our place of work, Trinity College Dublin, and a young woman cut off her hair, and you described it as an act of solidarity in, in this context um, with, the, with the protests in Iran. And I wonder what role do international people who care very much about the situation in Iran have? And I, I'm worrying in particular that, you know, if what is wanted in Iran is an end to the Islamic Republic, an end to a, a very austere government, an end to a very radical form of patriarchy in society, then do international actions cause Iran to uh, feel more justified and go even harder on its uh, fundamentalist um, activities? Or do you think they stand any chance of, of joining the voice that would eventually lead to change? So it depends what inter international action uh, we are talking about. We don't want to go back to the rhetoric of the war on terror, for example, uh, where uh, Laura Bush uh, in a letter had basically talked about saving Afghan women from the shuttles uh, of Taliban and Sharia law. Uh, you know, women in Iran, we can see we can see they're out there. They have agency, they have autonomy, they have a huge voice. So a part of what uh, we can do, those of us who are outside, and with international community, we are talking about international community of scholars and activists and feminists, some of them who are uh, Iranian, exiled Iranians or second, third generation Iranians, uh, and, and some who are coming uh, to us in solidarity. Um, I think, you know, people can keep these voices alive in, in the media, uh, write. So some of us, this is what some of us are trying to do to speak to the media, to write, to try to keep these voices heard. Uh, but uh, the, the other part of it is as well that, uh, you know, we, we have to plan for what will happen now. So at the moment, everyone is very excited. Everyone is talking about how these brave young women and men are on the streets uh, and what is going to happen to them after this. So already we know um, at least 76 people have, have died. We know uh, 1,500 people have been arrested, a lot of them who are activists, journalists, and union uh, activists as well, or union leaders, anyone uh, who they thought could probably lead some sort of demonstration seems to be uh, uh, or either arrested or will be arrested. Uh, a few of the names that, that I will give you, uh, Nilou Farah Hamedi, who is a journalist, she's the person who first reported on Mahsa Amini uh, and her family from the hospital. She is arrested. Elohe Mohammadi, she's another journalist, and she actually went to Mahsa's funeral and reported from there. She's arrested. Gina Mogaddas Gorgi, um, a Kurdish Iranian women's rights activist, and she gave an interview to BBC without wearing her headscarf. She's arrested. And, uh, and many, many more that I can give you uh, examples of. So, you know, we, we have to, uh, now the international community, have to keep 
the Iranian government accountable for violations of human rights. Uh, and th- this is actually something that, that we have been talking about when uh, Raisi was given a platform at UN General Assembly. I think it was just last week. And Raisi himself, the Iranian president, is somebody who is well known, well documented to have been involved in uh, executions of political prisoners in Iran in the 1980s. He was the former head of the uh, Iranian judiciary. And also he presided uh, over a spiraling crackdown on human rights. And so these are kind of the, the other protests that had, had happened before. Um, and so hundreds of, of peaceful uh, dissidents, human rights defenders, mem- members of persecuted minorities were arbitrarily detained under uh, under, when he was head of the Iranian judiciary. So I'm not even talking about uh, the time that he was part of what we call the death squad. So this was in 1988, actually, that he played a very pivotal role in the execution of thousands of political prisoners. Uh, so, so this is the time, I think, for, for governments like the Irish government to call the Iranian ambassadors in. And, and say that we know what's happening. We know how many people are dying. And these are crimes. These are serious violations of human rights. Um, and, and, you know, because the one thing we know, and uh, I know from the time I was under house arrest, I know uh, from the time that uh, my friends, uh, women's rights activists, were arrested, that the more noise we make, the better it is. Because if we know that these are, we know the names of the people who are in prison, and, and we can keep campaigning for them. That's very good. The other thing that's going to happen now is Balshivan, and I've been thinking about this, is how um, Iranian uh, young people, students especially, because even if, if they are not arrested, the, the kind of, I, I, I think one, one thing that will happen is uh, it's very likely that the students will be, will be barred from education. In academia as well, there are, a lot of academics who are writing in support of the protesters, they'll probably lose their jobs. So uh, for institutions, academic institutions, uh, to think about how they can host students and academics uh, who might need to come out of the country. And it it breaks my heart to say it because, you know, every time this happens, you have a brain drain uh, Mm -hmm. of these intelligent people coming out. But this is with the hope that we'll go back and make a better, better world. Um, the, the other things as well that, that international community can, can help with, uh, you know, in, in, in the future, uh, some of these cases might, might need to be taken to higher courts, kind of more international courts. So human rights lawyers can help uh, kind of drafting uh, the cases, for example. You said that the protests give you hope. What do you hope the outcome will be? Ah, it's it's very, very difficult to know what the outcome will be because we are talking about a very repressive regime. Um, it makes hoping a little bit difficult, but we still do have hope because we think this time is really different. This time, uh, it's just the fearlessness of the protesters really gives us hope. And I, I really think they have shook the bases of the Iranian regime's ideologies. So once you shake that basis, there is no going back. Because think about it. If the Iranian state comes now and says, we are going to give you leeway 
and choice over hijab, then that will have a rippling effect. Uh, and, and they have to give uh, more and more, hopefully. Uh, but, but, you know, but obviously, as I said, there is also kind of this, this hope that all of us have uh, that this is the end of, of the regime, but that we have to, to wait uh, and see. Roja, as we draw to the end, there's a particular piece of music which is being heard quite a lot at the moment as the unrest in Iran continues and people join in protests around the world. It's Song for Equality. By the Euro- yes. Yeah. Tell us if you can a yes. little about it. Uh, so I, I I do have to say that I wake up every morning listening to this. So this is mm-hmm. a song that I first heard probably around two thousand five, two thousand six. So it's not a song that would have been uh, widely known, and it's wonderful. Uh, like it was one of the seminal moments for me last Sunday to actually sing it with friends on O'Connell Street, um, in in a protest or vigil that that. Uh, was being held for for solidarity with Iranian protesters. Um, so it's it's a song that was created by the Iranian women's movement, and uh, it's uh, basically talks about being a woman and sisterhood. Uh, so the the start of it is Javane mizanam beruye zakhm bartanam faqad be hukm budanam ke man zanam 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 that I bloom or sprout from the wound on my body. Only for that I am a woman, woman, woman. Uh, and then it goes on to say, Choham seda shavim, va pabe pai ham ravim, va das be das ham dahim, va as setam ha raha shavim. So it's, it's all about, I won't go into all the details of uh, translating verbatim, but it's about kind of holding each other's hand and being together mm. and sisterhood and unity uh, so that uh, we can build a world uh, that's equal and uh, and a better and a happier world there, there is um, I know the the clip that that you will play as well at uh, the end of it uh, I, I actually chose one that uh, there is uh, one person singing by themselves without any music um, and her name is uh, Yasamane Ariani she was uh, a protester individual protester uh, to to the hijab to mandatory veiling uh, and in 2019 herself and her mom uh, took off their headscarf in the in Iranian in Tehran's metro and both of them are at the moment in prison both the mother and daughter with uh, really big uh, heavy prison sentences nine years uh, and a few months um, and ju- you know and, and just that just goes to show the link as well uh, between what's happening and uh, either collective or individual mm-hmm. acts of protest like the Iranian women's movement or what Yasaman Aryani and her mom have done uh, on the metro and and to the protests that are happening right now. So we'll play out with Song for Equality by the Iranian Women's Movement. Roja Fazale, thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Siobhan. Oh, oh, oh.
The Leap of Faith is presented by Siobhan Garrigan. Sound supervision was by Sheila Nivuil. The researcher was Sinead Kennedy. The broadcast coordinator was Jarlath Holland. And the producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. You can email the programme at faith at rte.ie.